can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65. Today we'll consider what the Bible says about the afterlife. It's been a, uh, a long journey through Isaiah over the past few months. It's a complicated book, one of the longest books in the Bible, and uh, we've only been able to, to skim it. And I've been thankful for the, the passages Thomas chose, although a couple weeks ago I heard someone uh, giving Tom a hard time that he had skipped over this, this guy's particular you know, favorite passage. And uh, even though I kind of helped Tom, you know, decide which passages, kind of affirmed his decisions on that, I couldn't help but join in the fun and give Tom a hard time for all the good passages in Isaiah that he skipped over. And, uh, but, but we're grateful for this book and for um, the, bi- the big vision that it presents that even, um, even hitting some of the key passages in it, you can see this movement throughout this book. Um, it's a long one, it's complicated, but there, there are certain passages that are, are, are unavoidable, like, like this one in Isaiah 65, the end of the story. Um, so that, that's where we'll, we'll finish today in Isaiah. Well, Jesus famously taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come. You know, on, this, on the spectrum of life from youth to old age, those on the front end, the, the youth, tend to have... Um, ambitions, be very ambitious, like astronauts aim for the moon. They want to squeeze everything they can out of life. And later on the timeline, as many of those dreams may remain unfulfilled, the, am- the ambition changes. It, the desires don't actually go away. That ambition just kind of morphs into anxiety. You know, we desperately want our desires for this life to be actualized. So the yearning expressed in Jesus' phrase, thy kingdom come, can actually seem somewhat abstract to our experience. So I confess for myself that sometimes when I pray that prayer out loud, thy kingdom come, there's another voice, a silent one inside my head that says, not quite yet, not today. I've got a couple other things I want to get to first. So this kind of internal struggle where I long for what I know is more than the world can ever give me, and yet I ask the world for it. It's this sort of irrational, internal schizophrenia. But that struggle, that internal struggle, is intensified by our culture. So the problem is not just inside of me, it's also around me. You know, we're awash in a culture that says here and now is all there is. So scoop up all you can. So P.Z. Myers, he's a science professor at University of Minnesota. He keeps a, a science blog. And he posted a few years ago about the absurdity of religious belief in any kind of afterlife. He advocates seeing death as an end, not as a transition to a life to come. So he says, death deserves all the sorrow the living bring to it. And the absurd attempts of believers to soften it with lies are a contemptible disservice to the life that is over completely. And his academic view regarding the absurdity of any idea of an afterlife actually drives marketing campaigns, the kind of campaigns that say, get all you can while you can because there's nothing later. Absurdity. The afterlife is absurd. Any idea of a life to come, absurd. And indulgence, immediate indulgence, is practically made into a virtue. So the world... The flesh and the devil conspire together. And and this is a difficult environment for the Christian. Consider the well-worn words of C.S. Lewis. He says, Most of us find it very difficult to want heaven at all, except insofar as 
heaven might mean meeting, our fr- meeting again our friends who have died. One reason for this difficulty is that we have not been trained. Our whole education tends to fix our minds on this world. Another reason is that when the real want for heaven is present in us, we don't recognize it. Many people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of, this, of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. So let me ask you a question. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. How sincere would you be if you prayed that prayer? How sincere are your words when you pray? Thy kingdom come. Well, that brings us to Isaiah 65, the the last words of Isaiah. So the book of Isaiah opened with God as the prosecutor bringing his charge. He calls heaven and earth as witnesses to, to witness, to be a jury, if you will, in his case against Israel. In chapter 1, verse 4, he lays out that case. He says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. God begins as prosecutor in the book of Isaiah, and then he continues as the judge who sentences criminal Israel to destruction. He says they'll be overrun and carried off into exile, and then that actually happens in the center of the book, Isaiah 36 through 39. But then chapter 40, God turns toward comfort. He says, comfort, comfort my people. And then God's mercy gains momentum in the book in chapters like Isaiah 53, this servant song, which erupt with the mercy of God spilling over and the humility and the infinite sacrifice of this servant who puts himself forward. And now as we approach the end of the book, chapters 56 through 66, Isaiah's eye looks to the future, and he considers the restoration of Israel. He envisions God's restoration of his people. So yes, there is judgment in the book of Isaiah, but out of the ashes of judgment rises the salvation of God. So the broad pattern of Isaiah is Israel's sin, God's punishment of their sin, and then eternal restoration. So Israel came out of Egypt in the the Exodus with a particular direction. They They were going somewhere. They were headed for the promised land. They were convinced, you know, they were going to have their very own land. God had a piece of property reserved with their name slapped across it. And now, all those hopes, that certainty has all been frustrated. And they're living in exile in someone else's land. And in that context, that extreme dejection and disappointment, God delivers to them this new promise in Isaiah 65. It's a promise that at the same time deconstructs their original idea and constructs an even grander promise. This is the promise, the vision that we come to in Isaiah 65. And I'll read beginning in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall there be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days 
or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. I want us to look at this passage from three angles. First, I want you to see God's redemptive pattern that's evident in this passage. So first is God's redemptive pattern. Second, I want you to see God's new creation, which this passage speaks to. So second is God's new creation. And then third, we'll look at the ethical implications of this passage. So first, God's redemptive pattern. So Isaiah is citing God here. He's telling the people what God says. And God makes a sweeping declaration. He says, pay attention as I'm about to create a new heavens and a new earth. Well, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and earth. It's an inseparable pair from the beginning. And heaven and earth provided the context for man and woman. So God creates heaven and earth and declares it good and then puts man and woman in the middle of it, actually creates man out of it. So there's an organic connection between mankind and the earth. They're actually in relationship with each other. And God himself defines the contours of that relationship. So God tells man what to do with the earth. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. And he tells the earth what to do for mankind. Everything in the earth is to be fruitful, to provide food for mankind. And the animals submit to Adam as he names them. So man's context is heavens and earth, and the relationship is perfect. The animals are called by name and respond. The whole world is fruitful, bringing its fruit in its hands, as it were, as a gift for man and woman. Mankind has a relationship with God and with each other, but there's also this relationship with the heavens and earth. But the fall of Adam and Eve plunged that relationship into disrepair. And the rest of the Old Testament tells that story. So God uses the flood in Noah's day, and the earth destroys mankind. And God uses fire and brimstone in Abraham's time, and the heavens destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a drought that sends the sons of Jacob into Egypt. So the earth isn't fruitful for them. And then when God wants to bring those same people out of Egypt 400 years later, He uses the heavens and earth to warn Pharaoh as the sun goes dark and animals plague the people and the heavens send hailstones. And that story of conflict continues today. I mean, how many natural disasters have occurred in the past year alone? Thousands dead, millions displaced. Homes have been built and then ripped up by hurricanes. Uh, Fields have been plowed and then ripped up by waves. So the promise of Isaiah 65 is no more. That conflict will be no more. The former troubles will be forgotten. Sin and conflict evaporate in the bright sun of God's new day. So 
God creates something new from what has been. It's not back to square one. It's God redeeming what has been ruined. In Shakespeare's words, what's past is prologue. All the former troubles have now set the stage for this cosmic deliverance. Well, this pattern of restoration is central to God's message. This pattern of restoration is central to the book of Isaiah. So Israel, in the first words of this book that I read a few minutes ago, was condemned for sin. The city of Jerusalem was a rebellious city, and with God's battering ram of judgment coming their way, they looked for help inward to their own supposed righteousness. They also looked for help outward to allegiances with foreign kings. But they continuously repeated to refuse to look for help upward to God in repenting from their sin and trust towards him. They were rebels. They were the epitome of rebellion. But that was chapter 1. Now here at the end of the book, we have come full circle. And God has taken that traitorous city, Jerusalem, in chapter 1, and he's corrected their faults. Through punishment, he has purified the city. And he's made something beautiful out of it. He has redeemed them. So this principle of restoration is at the heart of God's plan. He restores estranged sinners to himself. He restores his paradise to perfection. He restores his children to that paradise. Restoration is what God does. This is so unlike us, isn't it? We don't tend to have redemption mindsets. We want to throw away broken things. If there's a stain in the carpet, rip it up. If the marriage isn't going well, drop the divorce papers. If there's conflict, abandon that friendship. But that's not how God operates. Think about it. Knowing the mess that humans would make out of his good creation, God could have never created to begin with. Looking to the future and knowing what humans would do, he could have left it all undone and never created. That's one option. Or, as soon as he created things good, and then as soon as man ruined what he created, he could have wiped it all out and been done with it. That would have been a second option. But God chose option three. God chose to redeem what we ruined. To take his good creation that we plunged into disrepair and to restore it. To make something beautiful out of it. In your own life then, aim for restoration. What's broken in your life? What good habits need to be reinstituted? What relationship needs mending? Maybe there's some relationship you've been avoiding altogether for some reason. Well, make restoration a matter of prayer and priority for 2014. It's so clear in Isaiah that restoration is at the heart of what God is doing with mankind. Surely it should play a significant role in our plans for the future. Well, the new heavens and the new earth of Isaiah 65, what I'm getting at here is that they are kind of the apex of this redemptive pattern in Isaiah. So the movement in the book of Isaiah has been rising to this point, the restoration of Israel, the glorious future of Jerusalem, that once rebellious city, now made glorious. It will be even better in the end than it was at its beginning. So there's this redemptive pattern. Well, a question for you. Where, where is Jesus in this? 
Where is Jesus in this passage? Maybe it strikes you as odd like it did me that in this vision of the future, there's no mention of the Messiah. It may seem like he's not there. But Isaiah is looking at the future through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even though he doesn't tell us about the glasses that he's wearing, he's, he's wearing those gospel glasses nonetheless. And he tells us what he sees in the future through those lenses. So the gospel, the good news, is, is this. That Jesus Christ was judged with the judgment of Israel. All God's wrath against that wayward nation fell not only on them in the siege of Jerusalem and the ensuing exile, but that judgment from God that Israel deserved fell also on Jesus Christ as he was exiled from the Father. That's what Isaiah 53 was about. That's what Isaiah 53 was telling Israel. That all the judgment that they deserved for their constant rebellion would fall elsewhere. That's what those words mean. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. With his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, we're going astray, but all of our iniquities have been laid on him. And we can take that as a message for us as well. All our iniquities have been laid on him. And then Jesus Christ, having experienced the judgment and death that we deserve, that Israel deserved, was raised again to newness of life. So this principle of the, the principle, the, the core principle of the gospel, is new life in Jesus Christ. It's resurrection. Resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the crowning moment of the gospel. Being made new. It's taking the dead life and Uh, the dead corpse and breathing life into it. Or in the case of Isaiah 65, taking a decayed creation and recreating it. This newness, the newness of Isaiah 65, comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what Isaiah is seeing in the future is something that can occur because of the resurrection of Jesus. He is seeing a history that occurs because of or a future that occurs because of a history. Because Jesus actually rose again, it's a historical reality that occurred. And because that happened, there is a future that is coming. One of newness and resurrection. That's what he's seeing. A future that occurs because of a history. So he looks through these gospel glasses and he sees the restored creation that the gospel brings about. So this is God's redemptive pattern. God's redemptive pattern that is evident in the very placement of this text at the end of the book. God restores his people. God redeems what we have ruined. But there's a second angle from which to view this passage. A second angle from which to look at this passage would be simply the vision that it presents of God's new creation. So second is God's new creation. I want you to notice five things about this new creation. It's simply what the passage says about it. First, there is absolute happiness. So first, happiness is absolute. Look there at verses 18 and 19. God tells these people to be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. 
I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall there be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. So there's this close tie between what God does, creates, and how the people should respond with absolute joy and happiness and rejoicing. It's no longer life where there's this admixture of sorrow and joy. Life is no longer mingled. There's no bittersweet. It's just sweet. It's perfect. There is an intense gladness going on in these verses. So happiness is absolute. Then second about this new creation is that life is not cut short. Life is not cut short. So look there in verse 20. It says, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And then later on it says that, uh, this is verse 22, it says, Like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. Well, these verses have created some debate. You know, if this passage is about the eternal future, you know, if this passage is about heaven, why do old men die at all? And why does it refer to babies who are presumably being born? And why does it talk about an accursed sinner being present? Well, the prophets often look into the future and they see it kind of like Paul says, like seeing in a mirror dimly. So it's like looking through a clouded piece of glass. Exactness is not the primary concern, but, but rather what Isaiah is doing is giving a word picture of the future. He's trying to use metaphors of current human experience to describe an unbelievable, incredible reality. So in this way, he compares uh, a hundred-year-old man to a youth. You know, just this unbelievable comparison. Listen to the way the New International Version translates this verse. It says, The one who dies at a hundred years will be thought a mere child, and the one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. You see, the point seems to be that death is no longer an enemy that people are concerned about. Life is no longer interrupted by death. So life is not cut short. Third, labor is not in vain. Labor is not in vain. So look at verse uh, 21. It says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of the tree shall my people be, and my chosen ones shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain. Well, do you ever feel like your work in this life is unfulfilling or unfruitful? You put in 10 hours of work and get two hours worth of results out of it. I mean, I don't know how many hours I put into preparing this sermon, and here it is, 35 minutes, 40 minutes. You know, it's all you get. I grew up in Wisconsin, which has miserable weather this time of year, much worse than what's outside right now. I remember about this time when the big snowstorms would roll in and my dad would send my brothers and I out to shovel the snow at night while the snow was still falling uh, just to get the first layer of snow off the, the sidewalk in the driveway. Some of you are nodding like you understand what I'm talking about. And then if it was a particularly bad snowstorm, my dad would wake us up in the middle of the night and send us out again to get yet another layer of snow off. And then we'd wake up early in the morning and shovel yet again before heading off to school. Our work was like Ecclesiastes says, meaningless, meaningless. You know, it's all meaningless. 
My dad sent me a message just last week. Um, last month, he went out and bought a snowblower, which, you know, just about 15 years too late to do me any good. But so much of our work in life is like that. It's just a picture of our work. That's so often what it is. We put in so much effort and get so little out of it. And technology has certainly improved things. And while we should remember efficiency is not one of the cardinal virtues, we can be thankful that technology has improved our efficiency. But even with all the technology of our modern world, we we still work, and and work is good, and it's blessed by God, and something that we we use to glorify Him as we work and uh, be as efficient as we can. And yet our work is always plagued by a certain degree of futility and ineffectiveness. God's new creation is completely different. God's new creation is an utterly fruitful place. The person who builds a house inhabits it. The person who plants a vineyard eats its fruit. So my chosen ones shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain. Creation responds. Creation responds to every ounce of energy or drop of sweat invested in it. It, again, like the garden of paradise for Adam and Eve, it brings its fruit in its hands as a gift to us. Responds perfectly to the work invested in it. Fourth, violence is absent. Violence is absent in this new creation. So look there at verse 25. It says, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Well, these are, are shocking, idyllic images, hard to believe. There's, there's some debate over just how literally we should take these images. I mean, will the, will the carnivorous lion whose teeth are designed to tear into meat actually be found eating straw like an ox? Well, I'll let you sort that out over lunch. But um, these, uh, these are probably just poetic imagery for nonviolence. You know, again, this is like the word picture of what the future will be like. It's nonviolence. There's no conflict. I think the real point comes there at the end of the verse. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. You know, it's hard to even imagine a world without conflict, isn't it? The history of our own nation, which has been reasonably peaceful in regards to all the nation's histories, but the history of our own nation is a history of conflict. I mean, the birth of our nation was founded on a bloody revolution, and then you move from there to the Civil War and from there to the the Appalachian feuds like the Hatfield-McCoys down to our divorce-laden society that we live in today. Conflict is a dominant tone in our social fabric. It's hard to imagine a world without it. But here it is, Isaiah 65. No conflict, no violence. I wonder how much conflict have you experienced this past week alone? What percentage of your words have been marked by conflict? You know, this, this vision of the future should compel us as Christians destined for this world. It should compel us to walk in unity now. Psalm 133 says, 
How good and pleasing it is when brothers dwell in unity. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life everlasting. Brothers should dwell in unity. And this vision of the end should affect now for us. It should affect how the people in this room relate to each other. How the people in your family relate to each other. So violence is absent. And then fifth, communion with God is close. Communion with God is close. So look there at the end of verse 23. It says, They shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Can you imagine Israel reading those words? I wonder if those words would have been kind of striking to Israel. I mean, there they were in the land of a foreign enemy, kind of in this corporate holding pattern, waiting for the Messiah. It's like God was silent in regards to his promises towards them, as far as they could tell. And yet God presents this promise of a world where, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. This must have been comforting to Israel, a nation who prayed the Psalms with David, How long, O Lord? Do you ever feel that sense of delay? You're in some circumstance in your life where you you feel like you just wish God was closer. You wish you could perceive his response to your prayers. It seems like he's absent, or at least silent. You know, that feeling make us long all the more for this world where intimacy with God is unparalleled. There's no delay in fellowship with him. Our sin is removed. The one thing that blocks us from perfect perception of his ways and his responses, that sin is removed, and so there's this close and intimate relationship with our Father. Before they call, I will answer. So this is God's new creation, and it's a compelling vision, isn't it? A beautiful picture. But there's one more angle on this passage that we should consider, and that's the ethical implications of this vision. So third, the ethical implications of this vision of a new heavens and new earth. I'll mention four. First, if you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you just came with a friend or showed up for some other reason, perhaps you're a skeptic, of some sort, and you find this whole idea of utopia after death to be way too hard to believe, if that's you, you should at least want this vision to be true. You know, anyone who wants justice for the poor, uh, alleviation of global sickness and disease, anyone who wants to put an end to greedy politicians and oppressive slumlords and barbaric drug cartels, we should all share together in wanting this vision to be true. Compared with what we experience here in this life, this land of Isaiah 65 is an enviable place. You know, all philosophical systems tend to include some kind of utopian vision, whether that's the classless society of Marxism or the perfected humanity of social Darwinism. Mythology makes it a metaphor and calls it the fountain of youth, and our contemporary culture calls it sexual liberation. But whatever name it goes by, that quest to, so, to satiate our longing never ends. 
and the heart never rests. What our restless heart is craving for, what the restless heart of every, every human longs for, has not been found. It lies in another world. It lies beyond. You know, and yet we all share this internal longing for something more. People have always talked about it. Augustine called it the restless heart. Blaise Pascal called it the infinite bit abyss the, the, the heart cannot cross. We all have it, this, this longing, this desire for something more. So we come to Isaiah 65, and it's a compelling vision. Again, it's at least something that we should want to be true. Second, if you're a Christian, this passage should shape your thoughts about evangelism. Because this is good news. Do you ever feel like evangelism is an obligatory recitation of some formula you've memorized? Where you, It's like you feel out of your own skin sharing the very message you've actually staked your life upon. Somewhat ironic. But from the perspective of this passage, uh, and from the perspective of eternity, evangelism is simply a matter of sharing the evangel, the gospel, the good news. And this is good news, isn't it? It's a, a promise that satisfies the longing heart, that secures an eternal hope. If this is a vision that we should all want, that we should all learn to recognize this desire in our heart, as C.S. Lewis says, if this is a vision that we all share, then it is certainly good news worthy of being shared, something we don't need to feel awkward about. So let me quote an atheist to make this point. There's a man named Penn Jillet. He's an atheist. He has a show. He's a comedian, and he has a show called Penn and & Teller. And he has a lot of stuff online. He has a video clip online where he reflects on this story. He shares a story of, of a man who uh, was at one of his shows and then came back the next night and was in the crowd. I kind of met him after the show and uh, you know, complimented him and said, I was here last night. I saw your show. It was great. Thank you. I wanted to give you this, and hands him a Bible with some notes written in the front of it. And, uh, and Pendulay knew he was being proselytized, that he, this man was evangelizing him. And, and so as an atheist, he reflects on, on this interchange. He says, if you believe that there is a heaven and a hell, and that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, you think it's not really worth telling them because this will make things socially awkward? How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? And that's the question that really caught me. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? To believe that everlasting life is possible and to not tell them about it. If I believe that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point at which I tackle you. You know, evangelism makes sense if this vision of the end is true, right? And you may not want to tackle anybody with Isaiah 65 this week, but it's that good. This is good news, worthy of being shared. So this should shape our thoughts about evangelism. Then third, um, just simply you should pay attention to this vision. You should pay attention to this vision. So consider the first two words of this passage. There in verse 17, it says... For behold, it means pay close attention. Well, you might ask yourself, what are you paying attention to? What are you beholding? 
you know, what gospel do you preach to yourself? Maybe you have the tendency to deliver to your own soul the gospel of immediate comfort. You know, the gospel that says, if I could just have the vacation I'm dreaming of, or if you could just have the spouse you're imagining, if you could just have the fulfilling job or the circumstances could improve. You think if you could just wave a wand over your life and have it just the way you're envisioning in your mind, then the outcome would be happiness. You know, we all have a tendency to preach that kind of false gospel of immediate satisfaction to ourselves. We're, we're well-schooled in the gospel of immediate fulfillment. In the series, uh, the DVD series that we've been going through in Sunday school the past several weeks, uh, Paul Tripp has been talking about what he calls eternity amnesia. Eternity amnesia. Uh, when we forget that the here and now is not all there is. We forget that there's a life to come. And this passage calls us to pay attention to, to behold, not to forget that future reality. So this vision calls us to fix our hopes elsewhere and then to live in light of those replaced hopes. This vision is for our meditation so that as we consider it, as we set our minds here, we can let go of selfish hoarding of our goods because the magnetic core around which our life orbits is not personal success. It's eternal bliss. It's something so much better. So we're free to release whatever God gives us for His purposes. We're free to pursue new ends and new aims. So this, this vision uh, demands that we pay attention to it. And then a fourth implication Isaiah 65 should be deployed as a weapon in our fight against sin. So this this vision should be deployed as a weapon in our fight against sin. Now this whole section of Isaiah, I mentioned earlier, chapters 56 through 66, are a vision of the end. It's about the future. It's about the restoration. This whole section in Isaiah deals with future salvation. And this whole section begins with an ethical concern. So chapter 56, verse 1, which begins this section, gives an ethical concern. God says to his people, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, because soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. You see, the future that God promises has ethical implications for the way that we live right now. Peter recognized this also. So Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, who would have heard straight from him um, the teaching about this coming kingdom, when he sits down to, to write to the church, he, he reminds them of this coming kingdom. He re- reminds them of the end that is coming. And that all of the world will be dissolved and then recreated, and that this reality should lead them to live spotless lives. So listen to the way that Peter writes to the church. This is 2 Peter 3.11. 2 Peter 3.11 says this, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, likely referring to Isaiah 65, Peter says, According to his promise, 
we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So evidently in Peter's mind, Isaiah 65 has something to offer us in our fight against sin and our, our pursuit of holiness. You know, maybe you're discouraged over sins that just keep popping up in your life. You keep trying to put them down and they keep popping up. It's like the road to purity is impassable and that's discouraging. As we fight against sin, the longing for this world of righteousness is a powerful tool. So the vision of Isaiah 65, think think about this for a second. The, The vision of Isaiah 65 is a world in which all the former troubles will be forgotten. Isaiah is is careful to reiterate those words from God twice. All the former troubles will be forgotten. So there's no more death. There's no tears of sorrow. No conflicted relationships. But one of the former troubles that's eliminated from this new world is the root of sin itself. There's nothing like it. Darkness has been obliterated. Sin is gone altogether. So this incredibly appealing vision that tugs at the desires of our hearts, you know, we, we want this world. No death, no sorrow, no conflicted relationships. Well, all of a sudden we find ourselves longing for a world in which there is no sin. Because along with all the other things that are gone, sin is also gone. So as we allow our heart to attach itself to this vision of the future, we find ourselves longing for a world in which there is no sin. Isn't that interesting? Longing for heaven naturally leads the heart to hate sin. So we should take up Isaiah 65 as a, as a weapon in our fight against temptation. So in these ways, and I'm sure many others, that I hope the Spirit brings to your mind as you consider this passage, there are ethical implications inherent in this vision of the future. Well, this concludes our journey through Isaiah. So think of all the ground that we've covered in this long book. You know, you've got this nation that despises the very God who made them a nation. Got a God who punishes and judges that nation's sin. Also have the Savior of Isaiah 53 who makes himself a servant and absorbs all the, all the deserved punishment of Israel and our deserved punishment. And then in light of that, you have this vision of restoration of God's people, not just Israel, but people from every nation restored to perfect peace forever in God's kingdom. If your Bible's still open to this passage, just turn over a page to Isaiah, 65, Isaiah 66. So these last two chapters, 65 and 66, are really kind of a, a lump that go together. And 66, the last few verses of the chapter, just reiterate this vision of a new heavens and new earth. So verse 22 God says, uh, speaks of this new heavens and new earth again in chapter 66, verse 22. It says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. 
uninterrupted worship, unified submission to God from all people of all nations forever. Well, this is a compelling vision. (laughs) And so with sincere and grateful hearts, we should pray, thy kingdom come. We should want this to come and to come quickly. Well, as we turn to prayer, I I just want you to remember that whatever application there is from this passage, whatever may be going over in your mind right now and whatever application comes to your mind this week, you know, fruit from this passage will not come come about in your life um, as a result of guilt, feeling bad about something and so wanting to change. It's not the New Year's resolution. I feel bad about what I'm not yet, so I'm going to decide to do that in the coming year. It's, it's not going to happen from guilt. Guilt doesn't produce fruit. Self-discipline, self-effort are not where we should turn, but rather to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was left by Jesus to guide us into all truth, to bring about conviction of sin. And if there is going to be fruit in our lives, it's going to be the fruit of the Spirit. It's going to be what He brings about in us. And so even in our prayer time now, it would be appropriate for us to ask that the fruit from this passage would come about in our lives from the Spirit. And 2 Corinthians 3 says that transformation from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ is from the Spirit. So we rely on him for this, for any fruit to be born from this passage. And So let me pray for us now, and then um, you'll have some time to pray as well, and then one of the elders will close us. Lord, we are thankful that you have, you have not abandoned. You have not wiped out, but you have intended to, to restore. You have set in motion this plan to redeem your people and to all things. So we are grateful for that. Thank you for taking us up into Christ and allowing us to be caught up into this vision. We are unworthy at our best, so thank you. We do ask that your spirit would apply to our hearts a gratitude for the redemption that you have brought and that you would make us to live in light of that redemption.